Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining the Original Gangsters podcast. I'm your co-host, Jimmy Bucciolato, here with my co-host, partner in crime, Scott Bernstein. Hey, now. Very excited for this episode. Yeah, we've got a big episode coming up here. Before we get into it, I just want to remind everyone. Well, first of all, I want to say thank you to everyone who supported us, people who download our episodes and listen to us. And just uh, remind you to um, to please uh, continue to show your support. Subscribe to us on whichever platform you listen to: Spotify, Amazon, iTunes, Apple, Google, whatever. Um, follow us on social media: Facebook. Uh, we're on Instagram now. Uh, we're on uh, Twitter. Anyhow, uh, we'll, we'll get into our guest here. Thanks for your support again. But uh, we're we're honored to have uh, Tony DiStefano here with us. Great author, great reporter. I'm a big fan of of a lot of his books, um, especially the stuff on the Bonanno crime family. He wrote the books uh, Vinnie Gorgeous, um, King of the Godfathers, which is about Joey Messino. He wrote the book The Big Heist, which is about the Lufthansa um, heist and connects to to Goodfellas. And uh, he has a new book out about uh, Vito Genovese, and it's called The Deadly Don, Vito Genovese, Mafia Boss. So, Tony, thank you for joining us. Uh, let, let's let's talk about your new book. Um, what's going on with that? Well, it's uh, it came out on May 25th. That was the official pub date. And, um, you know, so far the reaction from uh, aficionados of, of the mafia and the mob stories has been good. It's been positive. Uh, it took a long time uh, to to do because you know you had the pandemic in between and that sort of uh, made research interesting because libraries started to close down. Uh, but uh, I had fun doing it and I found out a lot of stuff I didn't know about Vito and a lot of stuff I some stuff that sort of debunks some of the old stories about him uh, to some extent. But it was it's a, it was an interesting story. And that's what you try to do, try to tell a story. That's what you try to do. Yeah, I was just going to say, this is one of the first proper biographies of him. There, There is another book. It's a paperback. I have it. I can't think of who the author is. Do you know which book, you know which book I'm talking about? It was published maybe in the 70s or... Yeah, that, that's by Dom Frasca. Yeah, right, right. Was that, Is that any good? I've never read it. <laughs> I, it's a good book. Look, Dom, Dom Frasca, I never met him. Okay. Uh, I'm not sure if he's alive even, but... He had, uh, he was a old, I think, Journal American reporter, and he was pretty good. He had some pretty good credentials. And I, from what I understand, uh, from what I had heard, I think a relative of his uh, was connected to Genevieve's, uh, you know, on the street. And uh, he had a certain kind of entree with that. And he was able to talk to Vito uh, you know, interview Vito in his house with his lawyer present and, uh, you know, gets a very interesting color. Some photographs are in the book uh, that, you know, are unique. And I don't know who has the rights to them. I would have loved to have gotten the rights to some of them. Uh, but it, it's a good book. There are parts of it I think he's off in certain of the chronology. And there's certain stuff I can't really verify. Like he said that Vito uh, was running a, a brothel at some point. And, you know, became enamored with one of the girls. You know, I, ne I never came across that. And uh, it really was something that I couldn't dig out. But it was interesting. Uh, and he had some good insight. Some stuff, I, I don't know how he got to quote people uh, saying the things they said when this happened like 20, 30 years before this guy 
Don Prasca was really on the scene, really an adult, even reporting. Yeah. It's difficult to reconstruct dialogue, and I, and I don't like to do that, except in special circumstances where you let the reader know. So in any event, it, it's, it's, it, this is good timing. It's about time that we revisited uh, this, this significant organized crime figure, and, and you're the right guy, I think, to, to put out a, a proper biography. Yeah, so. Tony DeStefano, just for people that might be novices to the, to the world of organized crime, I'm, I'm guessing you're probably not if you're listening to this podcast, but, you know, Tony is one of the most prolific organized crime writers in America right now. This guy puts out, like, I, I feel like it's a book every year. Um, I read him religiously. Some people get enamored when they when they meet, you know, uh, athletes or movie stars or politicians. I get enamored when I meet, you know, my my idols in the in the uh, writing profession. And and Tony DiStefano, you definitely fit into that wheelhouse. So my first question is going to be: You tackle the Genovese crime family, specifically the patriarch uh, Vito Genovese, in this book. The Genovese crime family is known kind of throughout the underworld. I think not just in America, but globally as, you know, the Cadillac of organized crime families. They are kind of like the Ivy League, if you will. But a lot of your previous reporting was on the Bonanno crime family, which is a little bit more dysfunctional, yeah. which makes for great, Good. great reporting and great writing. <laughs> but, you know, how would you compare uh, writing about the Bonanno's to, you know, this last endeavor of writing about uh, the Genovese, but specifically Vito? Well, the, 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 with the Bonanos, the Bonanos, as you said, were very dysfunctional. And that made it easy, in a sense, because you had uh, Joe Messino getting convicted, turning state's evidence, becoming a cooperator, cooperating against Vinnie Gorgeous. Um, and, you know, it created a lot of fodder, a lot of information, a lot of uh, material, a lot of surveillance tapes, a lot of documents. It was, in that sense, it was easy. But you also had this this very Shakespearean type story, uh, you know, with betrayals all across the across the board here, um, even against Messino. And going on for decades, right? I mean, this the, the dysfunction in the Bonanno started in the yeah. 70s and lasted into the 2000s. Yeah, it, it did. And, you know, you had <clears throat> Philip Rostelli, who was really a boss, sort of a name, but he spent more time in jail and that created dysfunction in the family. Uh, he, you know, that family was dysfunctional, even though they tried to stay under the radar because of their dysfunction. The other mob families didn't want them involved in certain rackets because they were into drugs and that sort of pushed them to the back burner. So they actually were insulated from some of the big cases like the commission case, you know, the concrete case, the, um, uh, the Windows case, there was really a kind of uh, uh, protection that the Bananas had because they, the other families didn't want them involved. So, um, but still, the dysfunction was there. And a lot of these guys were aging out. And when they got in trouble, they realized they had to make a deal with the government because the government at that point, in 2000, early, you know, 2000, uh, was really getting the upper hand. So everybody started to flip against Messino. And then Messino, when he gets convicted, started to flip against, you know, guys like Vinnie Gorgeous and others too. He, talked to, he testified about others. And to answer your question about the Genovese crime family, the Genovese, with Vito, it was difficult because, well, Vito's been dead since 69. 
there weren't many people around who knew Vito uh, firsthand who were still alive. Uh, you know, he has a grandson, uh, and he has a son and a daughter who are still alive. They're well into their 90s, but they wouldn't talk. Others, distant relatives, would talk, but they didn't have much to offer. So I had to dig around. And the, the Genovese family is really kind of the problem of the one family. You said the Cadillac. I would say, yeah, I would think the Cadillac, but maybe the uh, uh, the the Land Rover or the Jeep, because they're really kind of are robust and resilient at a time when the other families are really been besieged and you know hit pretty hard. Like the Gambinos still have a presence. The Lucchese's not so much. The Colombos have been on life support, you know, for the, for the longest time. And you got the Bonanos who've been ransacked by the government with all these prosecutions. So the Genovese family is really a hardcore family. Hardcore in the sense that you have, uh, uh, you know, they're, they're tough to penetrate. And even the government will tell you this. Uh, they're just tough. But it made it interesting because Vito was kind of a guy who was, dead for all these years, and it was going to be interesting to see how we could get a story about him. And lo and behold, we were able to pull it together. Um, uh, you know, there's an interesting story. I knew Vito Genovese had a file at the National Archives for um, his prison term, when he stayed in prison, in federal prison. And I knew it was there. And I knew that I had to get to that file. But I had, this is in March of 2000. So what we had going on here was the fact that the country was shutting down. The libraries were shutting down. The archives were shutting down. And I said, look, I got to get down to Maryland. I think at any moment they're going to shut the, the archives, the National Archives. So I packed my bags ran down to Silver Springs, Maryland, got to Silver Springs, got the file, read it, copied it, and the next day they closed the archives. So I said, boy, I really cut this one close, but I got what I needed. And this helped that story because before that, the archives were open and they were giving me a lot of good stuff. In your book, did you have investigate the time that uh, Vito spent in Italia and his relationship with the fascist and Mussolini. What, what, what? How much of that is? Uh, would you say is is true and and not as opposed to like the mythology? Well, it, it, it's there's truth to it. I mean, one um, author found a newspaper article, an Italian newspaper, in which they clearly mentioned back in the 30s that Vito Genovese, noted fascist, I think the word was, uh, had given a certain amount of money to the local fascist organization in the town of Nola um, to create some sort of headquarters building or some uh, facility. And it was clearly, it was in the papers. I mean, it was quite, it was quite there. And, um, um, uh, you know, it, it was true. And then the Italian government in their investigations had material about Vito. Uh, so that corroborated some of that stuff. And then the testimony in the congressional hearings in the 50s corroborated more of it. Um, and you know, Vito was an interesting character. 
the, in the sense that he was, I uh, used the, the, the character in the uh, uh, Catch-22, the old man in Italy who was hanging around the, the brothels. And he was a real opportunist. He would side with whatever side had the upper hand whether it be the fascists, the Germans, the Nazis, or the Americans. And uh, to me, Vito was able to play that game in Italy quite well. You know, he sided with the right people at the right time. When Mussolini was at disfavor, you know, he was able to saddle up a little bit with the, the, the Nazis. When the Nazis were on the run and, the, you know, Mussolini was deposed, he got in with the Americans, and he, you know it worked to his advantage. Just like the idea, Scott and I have talked about the myth of the Italian mafia is, is not involved in, in drug trafficking. There's also this myth, I think, that goes back to Joe Bonanno's autobiography, which is a great, which is a great text. But but the way Joe Bonanno frames it is that there's this inherent hostility between the mafia and the fascists. That, that the mafia and the fascists are nat- natural enemies. And yes. the Vito Genovese case study proves that actually it's a lot more complicated than that. Yeah, yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're right. Because, uh, you know, Mussolini had this purge against the, uh, the mafia. Uh, uh, and uh, that's part of the book, the story in the book. And, you know, they wanted to beat down the mafia. They wanted to rid Sicily of the mafia. They wanted to rid the Italian culture of the mafia. And they thought they did it, you know. But any any government that thinks they they can deal and suppress crime, uh, you know, has got another thing coming because what they, they drove it underground, right? And then right. war came, and Mussolini was really really mismanaged things at his end. He um, uh, was really becoming held in a lot of disfavor in about 1943, and then he got deposed. Uh, he got deposed. And he had to leave. He went to the northern part of Italy and with the help of the Nazis, set up a kind of puppet government, Italian government. Uh, but he really had no power at that point. And the mafia, the criminals, um, were able to resurrect and were able to provide some kind of uh, uh, stability because government services at that point were in shambles. They were also able to provide help to the Allies in the invasion of Sicily. And Vito acted as a translator for the uh, Allied government uh, working out in Naples. So, you know, these guys were able to play the angle. And of course, when there were shortages of food, wheat, uh, other other commodities, they were able to corral the black market. And that's what Vito did. He corralled the black market for certain parts of the country, around the Naples area. And uh, so, you know, Mussolini may have had his campaign against the mafia, but in the end, uh, they were able to be very resilient and buy their time. And when Mussolini was on the run, that was it. You can kind of bring up this relationship between fascism and gangsterism. You could bring it up to modern day. And I'm interested in in Tony's take on this, and I don't want to get political here, but just you know, there, you know, the Trump administration was very hardline law and order, uh, you know, take down the bad guys, prop up the good guys, but 
from just kind of my straw polling over the last handful of years, there were a lot of mobsters, both retired and modern day mob guys that were huge Trump supporters. <laughs> You'd think that the, yeah, that, 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 uh, paradigm would be reversed, but like, I know just, you know, I'll throw out a name right now that, and I'm sure that he'd be proud to say he's a Trump supporter, you know, Joey Merlino, uh, skinny Joey Merlino, who's, you know, in my opinion, the most compelling mob figure in America right now is running the Philadelphia mob has been running the Philadelphia mob since the 1990s. You know, he's an unabashed Trump lover. And a lot of these guys were, so you'd think that the, the, the criminals would be opposed to a leader that was, you know, at least on the, uh, you know, at least veiled as a as a law and order president. Yeah, I mean, there's an, it's an interesting point of discussion because, you know, I, I always thought, I always think, I still think that a lot of these organized crime figures are not only, you know, politically conservative, uh, but uh, they like, uh, I think, a strong leader. Uh, look, would they like a leader who's going after them? I wouldn't think so. But I think a lot of them are politically conservative. Uh, they like a strong leader. And a lot of them, the old guys, you know, were somewhat patriotic in their own way. They served in the military, some of these guys. Vito didn't. He almost did. Uh, uh, to avoid a, a prison as a, a teenager, but uh, the war ended, and uh, you know they really—if you talk to scratch to some of these guys, you talk to them—they do have a love of country, and a strong leader might be part of that country that they love. Uh, it's an interesting dynamic. Um, I think a lot of these guys are, in their own way, patriotic. Um, but you know, I have to think more about that. Joe Pistone talks about that in in his when he he wrote the book Way of the Wise Guy that mm -hmm. the guys were um, not 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 conservative in an ideological sense because they really didn't have an ideology, but they were very nationalistic, very right. like ultra nationalistic, and also not very tolerant of other. <laughs> races and creeds and things like True. that so you can True. see yeah. you can see where some even if they're not ideological per se in a, in a traditional sense of like political theory um they have those kind of tendencies do you do you i i i have the book i haven't finished it yet the deadly dawn book so i haven't got into the back end of it do you get into like the legacy of Vito genovese and the leadership of the genovese crime family going forward after him, like with the chin and everything? Yeah, I mean, that, that's at the back end of the book. Uh, I, I, there was a period when Vito was, arre was arrested and convicted and in prison where there was a lot of back and forth among law enforcement and from their informants about who was going to take over, who was taking over, who were the likely candidates. And this in the early, uh, you know, 60s in that period when Vito, you know, went away, uh, there were a number of names bandied about. I think I don't think any of them really took took hold until later when Chin uh, really, you know, rose to the to the top. But this is this is much later. Was there any personal relationship between Vincent the Chin Gigante, who became the longtime uh, Godfather of the Genovese uh, through the late seventies until when he died in the two thousands? Uh, was there any relationship between him and Vito Genovese? Yeah. There was, there was a relationship. 
they were, you know, Vito was involved in, sorry, uh, well, Vito and, and, and the Chin were involved in that drug case, the big drug case. They got convicted, same case. And, and Gigante was the shooter, was the Costello the shooter. Frank Costello. Yes, the Chin was the shooter of Frank Costello at the behest of, uh, of Vito. Vito and the Chin were working uh, uh, that, uh, that heroin case, and Vito got convicted. Vito was doing stuff with the informant, the guy who turned out to be the informant. And, uh, you know, Vito, Vito, the Chin, the Chin, I should say, the Chin was the one who was dealing with the informants in a big way. And uh, he had been, I think, Vito's driver for a while. So. Wow. Tony, one thing, I, if I can speak for Scott, that we're interested in is like sort of politics of the underworld. I don't mean politics like like we were just talking about ideologically, but mm. the actual power structure and status within these organized crime groups. Can can you comment from your research on the – because I know you wrote a book about Frank Costello too called uh, Top Hoodlum. Um, when Genovese is in Italy and Costello is the acting boss – do you think Luciano would have preferred Costello to stay the boss? Is it is it true that Luciano did not want Genovese to have the top position? And and if, did, did that even matter? Did Luciano's opinion even matter at that point? Well, I mean, from my research, I think that Luciano preferred somebody like Costello who was more polished and more connected politically because that was important back then. Yeah. So I think that the preference was for Costello. And, of course, Costello was more or less the acting boss. Vito was kind of like the, uh, you know, the prince in waiting, so to speak, very, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, ambitious in his own way, but also very, you know, uh, put upon because he wanted to be the boss. Uh, but I don't think Luciano preferred – I don't think Luciano um, – like Genovese very much. If you read Luciano's biography, The Last Testament, now you can take that for whatever truth it's worth. Some people say it's not worth very much. Uh, he really dis despised Vito. And they supposedly, and I don't find this believable, they supposedly had a fist fight in Havana just before that mob conference started in Havana in 1946 or 47. And the, uh, Lucky Luciano said he got the upper hand and, and kicked and kicked uh, Vito's ass. Um, okay, you know, but he didn't like him. He didn't like him. He didn't like him. Was it your sense that um, the street guy supported Vito as opposed to Costello, who was the um, sort of the... Uh, well, to use a, a an analogy like the Paul Castellano, he was the, the the polished business guy, the diplomat, has the political connections, whereas Vito Genovese was supposedly like the the true uh, hoodlums hoodlum, right? Was that was that your sense that this, the rank and file supported Vito? And there was rank and file support of Vito, of course. He had that West Side crew, <clears throat> uh, you know, Tony Bender and uh, the others. Um, uh, Costello, yeah, was the more polished guy. He wanted to be a businessman. He wanted to be known as a businessman. He wanted to be legit. Vito, I don't, had his own business. He had a couple of his legitimate businesses. 
but he was into his uh, into his rackets, and I don't think that um, um, uh, Frank was able to marshal that much muscle in the end. But what the problem with with Vito, and this even though he got the upper hand of over Costello, is that he he made a strategically probably crazy move to have that conference in Appalachia, um, in upstate New York, and he pushed for that. Chicago mob guys wanted it in Chicago, their own territory, where they controlled a lot of you know, the political apparatus and the law enforcement apparatus. Why go to a place in upstate New York where you really don't have connections? And that was a problem. And it was back and forth on that. Um, ultimately, Vito won the day. They had the meeting at Barbara's house. And you know what happened then. Uh, and everybody bemoaned, and they held that against Vito for the rest of his days. Because what did it do? It not only brought them unwanted attention, but it also got some of them indicted. Vito wasn't indicted, but it got them indicted federally on a charge that ultimately was dismissed as being um, uh, legally unsustainable. But it got all this attention and got them all these legal problems. So everybody was really kind of down on Vito at that point. And that's when I think Vito and the mob went on this, you know, really downward slope after that. They were on a downward slope anyway after Keith Alver, because of all the attention, things were happening. But I think it accelerated. And then Vito gets done on the drug case. So that really takes him out of the picture. He had a very short reign, Vito did, as, as the boss. Although the family is still known as the Genovese crime family. There's no other, you know. No, no other moniker for that family. Yeah, that is interesting that he, he wasn't on the street for very long. When, but when as, consider, a boss, as a boss. He, as a boss, but as when boss. Like his, his, yeah. uh, his status kind of looms, right? Even, but it's interesting, yes. unlike Carlo Gambino, who was always, I mean, he hardly did any time at all. And Gambino was, yeah. was the boss for 20 years. Yeah, yeah, right. Yes. Right. Tony, how would you compare the two major dons that you've written about? Well, I mean, you've written about other dons, but between Messino and Genovese, I know they come from different eras. We, I asked you before about comparing the Genovese to the Bananos, but now I'm kind of asking you more of a more micro than and than macro. Again, I know they come from different eras, but did did, did you see any commonalities between Massino's ability to lead and, and Genovese's ability to lead? Well, I think they had different. They, they led differently. I think the Massino, uh, you know, he he made a lot of money, Joe. And that created some resentment. And Joe, <clears throat> although he was a leader who was smart, he was technically smart in the sense that he would not want people meeting in clubs to draw the attention of the FBI. He was very conscious of surveillance. We had that thing about the ear when some they decreed that when people were talking about him, they'd do this. And he got that from the chin, right? They had got that. May, yeah, he could have. Yeah, I, it may have been. The chin told everyone when they're talking about him, just touch, or just touch their chin. Yeah, exactly. And, um, uh, you know, Messino in that way was careful, but he didn't engender loyalty. And I think that's because he, you know, he tried to clean house to cover his trail, killing people. 
Vito, look, killed people in his life as a, as a, as a mob boss and as a mobster, but he engendered more loyalty, I think. Um, Joe, in the end, didn't have that kind of loyalty. Look who turned on him. He alienated. Yeah, he alienated people. His own and brother-in-law. He, his own brother-in-law. That's right, Salvatale. He also, um, uh, all of these major captains flipped on him. Uh, Frank Coppa, Eddie, you know, uh, Lino. Tartiglioni. Yeah, and, and, and Big Louie. And, and um, you know, he did, in the end, there wasn't loyalty. With Vito, Vito got done on that drug case, not because of disloyalty by anybody significant in the family, but because of one conversation he had in a German restaurant that was overheard by the DEA agents. Then it was, uh, I think it was the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. And it was just a snippet of a conversation, but just a, oh, he's all right, sort of statement. And they were able to tie Vito into the conspiracy based on that, but it wasn't a major, major, uh, 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 you know, run of informants against Vito. You know, he he could have skated, I think, if... uh, if uh, you got a different jury, maybe. Uh, but in the end, you know, you get enough of collateral stuff proved and a jury will look at it and say, okay, there's just one little statement. Now everything else was proven, so we'll just wrap it all together and Vito get done. There's a conspiracy theory that that case was so weak that Carlo Gambino and Luciano were, were feeding the feeding the the law enforcement intel to take Genovese off the street. Okay, Carlo Gambino did not like the yeah. Genovese, especially for as Tony mentioned about Appalachian. And I've heard the same thing uh, here in Detroit. Um, you know that uh, Joe Barbera's son, Joe Barbera Jr., uh, who eventually became a a, a Detroit mob member transferred families uh from that northeast pennsylvania family into detroit when he married um uh bazi vitali's um daughter uh and joe zarilli the godfather of detroit who sat on the commission was there at appalachian and um you know, scurried away by his bodyguards. I think it was Tony Giacalone and, and Tony the Bull Corrado were there with him, and they, I heard they literally picked him up and <laughs> carried him through the woods. But we know that Tony's, or sorry, we know that Joe's really was there because we have a uh, a rental car receipt from Binghamton, New York, that was uh, that day before that was given out to Joe's really. But I, I obviously never got to interview Joe's really. He died in 1977. But I interviewed a number of people that were close to Joe's really, and they told me kind of like what we were talking about, Carl Gambino uh, holding that against him. And as, as Tony said, a lot of other organized crime figures held that against him. Uh, you know, from talking to people that I knew that were. Uh, had access to to Joe Zerilli at the time. Joe Zerilli held that against Vito Genovese. Yeah, they would. They would look at the trouble. I mean, they, you know, what? At least a dozen of them got indicted federally. Yeah, and their names are all over the newspapers. Their pictures. Uh, they were made to look like buffoons in some sense by running through the woods. They actually found. They actually found a piece of paper with Mike Polizzi's phone number on it. And at that time, Mike Polizzi was a, a young up-and-comer in Detroit. Eventually, he became a capo and then the consigliere. But I know they found a, um, 
a piece of paper with his number on it, even though he wasn't present, but he was obviously in some capacity helping arrange it with uh, Joe Barbera Jr. So yeah, I, I digress talking it, you know, uh, tying this into Detroit, but um, I, I'm interested in your take and I'm moving into to some of your work on the Bananos. I, I personally have an issue with the deal that the government made with Joe Messino. In, in my opinion, you don't make a deal with the boss. The whole point is to, to get the, 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 the smaller guys to give you the biggest guy. The kingpin strategy. Yeah, I don't like the idea of making a deal with the kingpin and then using the kingpin to get all the guys he was instructing to do criminal activity. Like, they were doing that stuff on his, on his watch. So I, I just – it doesn't sit well with me, frankly. It, you know, Joe Messino, in, in some ways, I'm like, you know what, you know, let – you know, he's living his best life right now. He only ended up doing, what, 10, 15 years less than that? Oh, yeah, if, if, if that. He uh, certainly less than 10, 15. He, um, Joe, Joe's situation was complicated for him by the fact that he faced a death penalty case, and he was wanted desperately to get out from under that. So the one chip that he had, well, probably a couple, was to give him Vinnie Gorgeous. Just for people uh, that don't know, Vinny Basciano, a.k.a. Vinny Gorgeous, was a very, very flashy, magnetic mob figure in New York in the early 2000s that eventually, in a, in a short period of time, um, worked his way up to being acting boss for Joe Massini. Yeah, he, he did it himself. I mean, nobody really gave him that title. But uh, he, as he told Messino, I'm doing it for you. You know, I'm, gonna, you're, I'm projecting your power through me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Messino at that point, you know, saw this as a, as possibly a card to get out of, uh, get out of the death penalty for sure. So he taped the Vinnie Gorgeous while they were in the Metropolitan Correctional Facility, and um, that gave them enough to indict Vinnie Gorgeous on a. Uh, his own death penalty case, which he managed to elude the death penalty, but got convicted. Um, so Joe had to, you know, Joe wanted desperately to avoid the death penalty. So if he couldn't have given them Vinny Gorgeous, do you think the feds would have still played ball with him? I, I don't think so, only because I don't think he had much else to give, apart from the location of where the other bodies of the three captains were buried. There were two of them still outstanding. Uh, that was the uh, three captains who were killed in that slaughter in uh, 1981. Yeah. And um, uh, apart from that, I don't think Joe had much else except, you know, Vinnie Gorgeous, because Vinnie gave it to him. And he was able to, you know, walk Vinnie down the garden path, as it were, I'm not saying, and I'm not saying Vinny pa- uh, Basciano is a victim here, and I'm not saying that we should no, all feel sorry either. for for Vinny Basciano because he was a pretty ruthless, um, no, he was, he was mob figure. But I, it just doesn't sit well with me that Joe Massino gets a free pass for pretty much 40 years of of shot calling and you know ordering several murders, uh, a lot of them cold blooded and and just you know, for self-preservation's sake. Mm-hmm. And Out of greed. A lot of the guys yeah. he killed just to take over their rackets. And I, it just doesn't, it doesn't, it seems to me that, that that's a backwards blueprint uh, 
to, to, to take down organized crime. You, you go from the top to the bottom instead of the bottom of the top. And I, I understand. Yeah, it's, um, you know, I mean, um, I, I can see he didn't, apart from Vinny, he didn't really offer them very much. I don't think he was used in one or two other cases, but I don't think he got any result for the government. And just to let people know, uh, Vinny was uh, allegedly trying to kill judges and prosecutors. So, you know, this this guy was a little uh, unhinged and definitely it needed to be reeled in and by any means necessary. That may, that may have been a factor because the government made a big issue about those uh, alleged plots to kill prosecutors and, and judges, although um, uh, I question whether that, there's really strong evidence about that. Right. Um, uh, so, but in any case, I mean, you know, he was a guy who was doing all sorts of strange stuff, Vinny. Um, you know, he not only was he convicted of the, uh, homicide, but he also had other homicides that were tied to him. Mm-hmm. He wasn't convicted of them, but they were looking at him for other homicides. And he was taking over the family to try to reconstitute it. So he was that kind of danger uh, for the government, for other people. You could tie Vinny, um, you're, you're obviously the expert, but um, stuff that I've read, you can tie Vinny into the three capos. He was a, a protege of uh, Big Trini, I believe. He was, yeah. He was his driver. Right. Um, and there's a f- classic photo of the marriage a wedding reception at the one of the hotels in New York. I think it was Pierre Hotel. And there's a picture of Vinny in the background, you know, fresh-faced young guy with a open, you know, collared yeah. shirt, grinning, standing behind Big Trini and some of the others. He looks like a baby. Uh, it was uh, quite a photo. Did um, Bastiano, did he approve of Sal Montagna and the sort of Sicilians taking over leadership or did he have no, nothing to say about was he out of he was so out of commission at that point I think point? he was out of commission at that point I don't think he, he really had much to do with it didn't Sal the iron worker come up in the same crew that Vinny uh, Gorgeous was he, running he was Baldo Amato's guy yeah I, I don't think Vinny had much to do to propel him uh, the iron worker Sal uh, to this position to whatever position he got to and it wasn't very long yeah Jimmy give Give a little uh, just quick uh, background on who uh, Sal Montana was. Yeah, my my understanding is that he was he came up under Baldo Amaro's uh, crew, and Baldo Amaro was from Castellamare, which is interesting. Castellamare del Golfo in Sicily, which is interesting because that's where Joe Bonanno, the the namesake of the organization, is from. And for a long time, throughout the thirties, forties, fifties, sixties. A lot of the high-ranking guys were still from Castellamare, uh, Giovanni Bonaventre, guys like that. And then even into the 80s, Cesare Bonaventre, Baldo Amato, those guys were from Castellamare. They were the zip faction of the Bananos, and they were kind of a a private security unit for for the godfather at that time. or the Carmine Galante, who was— The the uh, self-appointed godfather, uh, Carmine Galante. Yeah, some people doubt, doubt that he was the boss. Right. I think it was. I think Rusty Rostelli was probably the boss the whole time officially, and yeah. uh, Carmine was going around telling everyone that uh, that he was actually. He was but, another unstable guy, Carmine. Yeah, yeah, but he his roots were from Castellamare too. His his parents were from Castellamare, so it was interesting for people like me watching this take place where 
by the time, you know, Cesare Bonaventre, Messino has him killed in 84, I think. Baldo Amato goes to prison. I think he's a lifer. So it was really interesting to see. He went to prison and came out. Right. He came out. Yeah. Then he went back. Then he went back. Then he went back in. And so to see basically the Italian Americans had finally taken over the Bonanno crime family 100%. Yeah. Sal Bonanno. So in the Messino. In the late 2000s. Yeah. Sal Montana, who they call the iron worker, the, the New York press nicknamed him the Bambino boss or the baby boss because he was only like 40 years old or 30 yeah, years about, old. Yeah, he's about, yeah, young guy. I think he was young in his guy. 30s still. Right, and uh, he was boss for a couple years and then got deported to Montreal. Right. And right. then once he got to Montreal, he got himself right in the thick of the great Canadian mafia war that's been going on now for over a decade. And you literally have hundreds of bodies that have... Uh, you know, fallen in the, uh, since around 2009, and Montana went right from running the Bananos to coming into Montreal and to trying to take over uh, all of the uh, organized crime in Quebec, and he ended up being killed. But what was in interesting is, is Montana was was also from Castellamare, and so that was what I was trying to say is that it was interesting to see the Castellamarese reemerge, <laughs> at least briefly, as 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 a leadership position in New York. But then, you know, as Scott points out, he's he's deported. But um, I was just curious because I know, uh, Tony, you you wrote about you covered some of that in in the uh, the newspapers there. Uh, what what your thoughts were about Montagna and his and his uh, his his legacy, his time as boss, and then what happened and transpired in Canada. Well, he, you know, he had a very short legacy. I mean, he really he really uh, wasn't a factor for very long in New York. Uh, he got, you know, went up to Canada, and like you say, got into the thick of it. And that was, I think, Thanksgiving Day 2011. Uh, he was killed on the river there, up there, on the bank of the snowy uh, uh, river, uh, running away from uh, gunfire. I don't think he was much of a factor in New York because uh, he really didn't have that much of a tenure. Uh in New York, that's my that's my gut feeling about it. These guys get attention. Once they get attention, you know, they're really kind of neutralized. It was really interesting to see a situation where a boss is assassinated in this day in this day and age, right. Where and, that doesn't happen. But then, but then there's no regular like, basis. There's no like New York. I mean, the Bananos like didn't respond. I they mean, never clap just, back. They never right. Like I mean, that was really bizarre. I mean, what what do you make of that? Again, like the the political situation for the New York guys to not do anything about a guy who was their boss just recently. Well, maybe he wasn't that much of a boss to them. Um, you had you know guys like. Uh, Mancuso, Mike Mancuso, supposedly uh, was the alleged uh, boss uh, in waiting. And maybe, you know, maybe we've got uh, Sal, the iron worker, uh, taking him a little bit too seriously in terms of his stature. That's interesting. Uh, It may be that, uh, uh, you know, he was uh, aspiring, but he didn't have much time. He didn't have much time. And uh, and he really didn't have much time, and uh, went up to Canada and got killed. Something was not good about his political skills. 
I don't think he was much. <laughs> I don't think he was much of a politician. I mean, <laughs> from my research, he was someone that was very blunt and someone that uh, was very ambitious and, and didn't really care if, if the people that he was doing business with didn't want him in the picture. He was going to be there regardless. But we we yeah. all, we know from talking to John Panisi last week that guys were still throwing around his name though after he was dead. Remember? Really? Yeah, yeah. Some of the Bonanno guys were claiming that whatever, like they still had rights to some territory because it was so. It's interesting. I, I guess it maybe depends on the situation and who you're talking to. What what his what, status na- was. what narrative behooves right right the person that's that you're having right. a conversation with right uh, Tony. As we wrap up here, um, did you ever get an opportunity um, to interact, whether it be uh, via phone call or in person or correspondence with Joe Massino? A conversation, a couple of conversations. Wow. Uh, I uh, had a uh, uh, more of a relationship with his uh, wife and daughters who were helpful to me on the book. Uh, they gave me a, an interview that really kind of made the story for the day at the beginning of Joe's trial for me. And we stayed in touch. You know, I'm still in touch with them here and there. Uh, but that's that was yeah. And to answer your question, yes, I interacted with Joe a bit, and not a lot. He wasn't going to tell me very much, and I interacted with his family more so. What were the impressions of of Joe when you when you got to talk to him on a one on one? Intelligent guy, a smart guy, intelligent. He had a native intelligence. I'm not saying he was a book learner guy. Uh, he had a a a head for for doing things. Uh, and he realized the importance of, you know, trying to do legitimate businesses. And he made a lot of money legitimately. Um, and he made a lot of made a lot of money illegitimately. <laughs> uh, but he uh, he impressed me as being somebody who was innately very intelligent. Did he like your book? Did he compliment you on it? I don't. I know he read it. Uh, I didn't hear any bad blowback. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. You know, he has his own idea uh, about things. They all do, right? Yeah. They all think that they know everything. I know this is just sort of gossip, but I can't help it. Uh, did the Messino and Vitali families ever reconcile? <laughs> to your knowledge? No. As far as I know, no. Wow. No. That, that was a that was a rift that sure. was uh, irre- irreparable. Um, you know, that was Sal Vitali was. Josephine Messino's brother, younger brother, she raised him essentially as a, as a, you know, uh, because the parents were working. Sure. She was, she was the big sister. And, you know, she really was devastated when he flipped and that was it. You know, that was it. She, uh, Josephine, you know, really cut off the Vitale family. Is Salvatore free right now? Is he in the he witness, he's in the witness protection somewhere? He's protection in witness, program. I guess, security, whatever they call it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's relocated someplace. I don't know where he is. I'll, I'll digress and make this about me for about 25 seconds. But, you know, my uh, two interactions with godfathers that I, that I wrote, wrote about weren't as positive. <laughs> Jack Toko, who was, you know, the law I mentioned before. Oh, long, Jack Toko, yeah. Long-time godfather of Detroit. Um, my first book came out. And it had a picture of his dad, who was the founding father of the Detroit Mafia, Black Bill Toko, mm-hmm. and a picture of his dad on the cover of the book. 
And I heard from his nephews that he called a family meeting around Christmas of either 06 or 07. And he <laughs> took all of his, or told all of his grandkids and his nieces and nephews to go into Barnes and Nobles and go into Borders and take the book and hide it. <laughs> Put it behind other books. Wow. Oh, no. and, and then the last thing I'll, I'll tell, and th- this is a true story and it, and it's, it still blows my mind when I tell the story. Uh, my most popular book is called Mafia Prince. Uh, it's about uh, the Philadelphia mob of the 1980s. Uh, crazy. It was the, the biography of, of, or autobiography of Crazy Phil Leonetti, who was the underboss of the Philadelphia mafia, the nephew of the, the maniacal uh, mafia down there, little Nicky Scarfo. And they had a huge falling out. Uh, Leonetti had been, even though he had been a nephew to Nicky, it was more like a son. Uh, Nicky had, had groomed him and, and raised him as almost a surrogate son. And then Philip, ended up flipping on Nikki and Philip dedicated the book to Nikki, but like in a, like a snide way, like you taught mm-hmm. me, you know, you taught me all these things in life and look where you are and look where I am. And at that mm-hmm. time, Nikki Scarfo was doing life in prison and, and Philip was out uh, living his life. Nikki died a couple of years ago, but Nikki got his hands on the book um, and read the inscription and literally had a heart attack. My book, oh, yeah. my book gave Nikki Scarfo a heart attack. He, oh, had, to go, he had to go spend uh, th- three weeks in the uh, medical unit after he got his hands on my book. Well, you know, that's a, uh, I guess it's own testament. Right? Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know <laughs> if I should be proud of that or put that on the review for the marketing. Uh, so yeah, yeah, finally, um, Tony, what are you, are you working on anything new? You got anything else in the hopper? Uh, not right now. I mean, I'm, I'm just trying to do stuff with the newspaper and, uh, catching my breath, you know, uh, I'm trying to, I'm hoping that soon we'll have, be back to more or less normal where you can get into the government archives and the records that you need. Uh, uh, soon I think we will. Uh, but right now I'm just trying to, uh, you know, publicize the book, uh, and, uh, you know, catch my breath and, uh, try to figure out the next one. Is there going to be a trilogy? A trilogy? You have Costello, Genovese. It seems like natural that there should be, I don't know, Gigante or Fat Tony Salerno or somebody. Well, Gigante, you have the Chin book by Larry McShane. Yeah. Sorry, so that's what it's taken. Um, you know, I've often wondered if there's a real true good book to do about Lucky Luciano. Um, that would take a lot of heavy lifting in original work. Uh, you know, again, the problem with these uh, old mythical characters is that, you know, a lot of people knew them are dead. You got to try to reconstruct their lives, Um, which is, you know, a challenge, but sometimes it can be done if you know where to look. You you can answer this on the record or off the record. We can kick it. We can cut it. If you, if you don't like the the question or you don't want some of your answer, uh, you know, given or some of your answer you, you can say, but some of the answer you don't want to. But uh, have you have you spoken to, uh, to to Big Joe Messino about maybe Joe wanting to do some type of uh, auto bio? And I've never spoken to to Joe Messino about that. No, no, I'm not. You know, I have no problem saying that. It's just uh, I haven't. If he was interested, would that be something you would be interested in? If he called, you know, you? I, I I shy away from collaborations because I've gotten involved in a couple of them. It never went anywhere where everybody has their view about yeah. what they want. Yeah. Then it's not your book. Right. It's their book. 
So if you were ever to do something like that for a guy like him, you know, I think it would be interesting. But you got to you got to get your head behind the fact that it's going to be his story. And unless you tell it uh, like, you know, Gay Talese did with uh, Honor Thy Father, Honor Thy Father, um, you know, you got to be prepared for the fact that, you know, you're dealing with a very strong personality wants to have his way. So, you know, that's always an issue for me. Some people don't care. Um, uh, and, you know, some people have expectations of lots and lots of money. Off of these things. I, I, can, I can speak to that. Every, yeah. every mob figure I've ever spoken to in the last 15 years, and, and my, my reporting spans organized crime uh, outside of the Italian mob, you know, goes mm-hmm. into the African-American organized mm-hmm. crime and, and uh, Latino organized crime and, and outlaw bikers. Every single one of these guys thinks that their story is worth a million dollars. Oh yeah, no, that, that's true. They they want a lot of money. Uh, they're you know some of them are down on the heels, down on the luck. They have no money, and they think they're going to make a big killing. It just doesn't happen that way. I had this uh, Detroit, um, very very infamous in Detroit, a very infamous hitman uh, that worked um, both for the the black mob and the Italian mob, and he just got out of prison after doing thirty two years, and I met with him. And he was actually very, it was a very cordial conversation and, and, and he wasn't threatening in any way, shape or form, but he said, uh, I'd be interested in writing something with you if, uh, if you put $10 million on the table <laughs> and you could get me the guys that did the wire and they would develop it into a television show. That's when I would agree to work with you. And I was just like, you know, I really appreciate you taking two hours of your day and sitting with me and, and having and lunch. But it's just, I said, I said, all due respect, it's just unrealistic to think that you could get anywhere near, you know, mm. a seven figure payday and a guarantee that a television show was going to be. And, and, you know, I was like, I'm fascinated by your story because I report on Detroit. But outside of Detroit, nobody knows who you are. So you're definitely mm-hmm. not. Gonna, That's true. Right? That's true. Some of these guys have an inflated sense of self-importance. And, uh, you know, sometimes some of these guys in this life are just not that interesting, you know? <laughs> you can only tell the same story so many times. And right now, you know, I've, people ask me all the time, I'm like, I only, I really only believe in this world that we report on, you know, it's, it's not a, it's a, there's a very finite amount of stories left to be told. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's, a, you reach a point, like you just said, where, where, you know, you know, unfortunately for them, their stories aren't that unique. It might be interesting, you know, you know, if you if you compare their lives to the lives of their next door neighbor or the mm-hmm. lives of their brother. But, you know, in in, you know, comparing it to the lives of other uh, underworld figures, it's it's pretty much par for the course. And you're not really going to move the needle with just the, the regular rise and fall of a of a gangster anymore. I mean, those stories. Of- yeah, I know. Unless you, you got a maybe a historical approach might be the best way to go or if you really find something that sort of changes the storyline uh in a way um uh you know i tried to do that with a couple of points in the genevieve story uh with his life story uh but you know sammy gravano has been doing his pod his, i guess his podcast and he's always got a lot of stories to tell he does well he's one of the people that's that in my opinion has a valid story to tell i mean he and he's a good storyteller and he's obviously connected to john Gotti. so uh 
Yeah, well, that you know, and he's got he's yeah, he was in a lot of things. He was into a lot of things. It's like uh, we sit here and we kind of joke about it, but you know, Tony, I'm, I'm pretty sure you can relate. It's like uh, if it's if it's not John Gotti or Whitey Bulger, <laughs> yeah, like, like those two Pablo, those two figures have had like libraries written on them. I mean, how many mm-hmm. more books can I read about John Gotti or Whitey Bulger? <laughs> I know, like, I know, I the know. cottage industry on those two. I know, and then at some point it sort of taps out. I mean, uh, um, uh, you know, it, it just the, but the books are coming out. You know. Um, uh, Vito, I was able to do because Vito had a big gap in his coverage there for you know five decades. We hadn't had anything on him in terms of a biography of substance. No, I, I agree, and I, I encourage um, our listeners to 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 buy it, buy your other books, uh, the Costello book, the Messino book, and um, uh, your website is it uh, AnthonyDeStefano.com or TonyDeStefano.com? Try both, Tony. Uh, DeStefano.com or AnthonyDeStefano.com. There's another author with my name. I'm, I'm Anthony M, like in Michael. Right. DeStefano. There's another Anthony DeStefano who writes about um, more religious subjects. <laughs> yeah, I noticed that, like children's books or something like that. Right. So, well, thanks yeah. again uh, for uh, for joining us. Uh, really appreciate your time, and uh, hopefully, we'll have you back on again. We can, you know, do some more deep dives into your books. But I really appreciate your time, Tony. Well, thank you, guys. It was fun. Thanks, it was fun. And all the best. All thanks the best. Let me know. Okay. All right. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Original Gangsters podcast. We'll be continuing giving you fresh content on a weekly basis new interviews, new insights, new breaking news. We love doing it, and we hope you love consuming it. So uh, until next time, for the OG podcast, for my partner, Jimmy Bucciolato, I'm Scott Bernstein, out.